Welcome to Be There, Done That, a Catholic history podcast with Leah and Jake. Today, in this episode, we're going to be talking about St. Patrick. And you're wondering to yourself, what happens to that beat episode? They said they're <laughs> going to do a beat episode. So our beat episode has taken a step back just for us to do some research. We recently had a loss in the family that uh, delayed a little bit of our recording and reading and so we just want to be better prepared and there will be some bead discussed in this episode though because bead who's a, a monk in the like eighth century he's looking back at this time period where roman britain which is where patrick comes from kind of fades into anglo-saxon britain and that's um that all happens in patrick's lifetime so i think that you'll still get a little bit of bead if you were looking forward to that so let's actually talk about St. Patrick. Why St. Patrick? Why did we choose St. Patrick? Everybody knows about St. Patrick. Or do they? Exactly. So what I, I was actually very out. surprised. I didn't realize, and um, two of the sources you'll hear us talk about most, but mainly one of them, um, are Patrick's two letters that he left behind. And I didn't even realize before we started researching this way back that he had left behind any writings. But apparently they're authentic um, and they're two of the most important sources from this time period. So let's start off with his life, the beginning of his life. So we're going to go to the beginning of his life. Unlike St. Thomas More, if you listen to that episode, you know, I could clearly say Thomas More was born on this day-ish. Which is exactly why I cannot stand this type of history. It's like speculation. It's like, yeah. tell him, Well, that, let me get to that. So... Unlike Thomas More, you can say he was born this year in London, died this year in London. With St. Patrick, it's like, eh, he maybe was born in this decade, probably the end of this century at least. And he might have died sometime between this decade and this decade. We don't know where or when or how. His life is an enigma wrapped in a mystery. But it is. That sounded really dumb. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But he was probably born, as best as we can kind of tell from the chronology that we know of, he was probably born in like the 390s and um, somewhere in like uh, Western Britain, Roman Britain at the time. So when he was born, Britain's a Roman province, at least the southern part of it that isn't controlled by the Picts, which is now Scotland. And he's, um, he's some sort of Romanized Britain. He probably spoke a... Um, old British language that has now probably evolved into Welsh. And there's a good anecdote which um, is from one of his medieval biographers that quotes him as saying this really weird word. It's something like um, Morabroth when he he was annoyed at someone. And it doesn't make any sense in Celt in uh, Irish, Celtic, Gaelic, or in Latin, um, which we know he also at least kind of spoke. But it does maybe mean something in Old British, something like. Um, I forget now, like by God's uh, Sabbath or something. Okay. And he, he said, um, according to his medieval biographer, Muraku, he said this word, Mudabroth, and it might mean by God's judgment in Old British. It's kind of hard to tell because all of this is sort of speculation. But that little detail preserved might mean that that's kind of what his, his language and his background were. Um, so he's growing up, though, in Roman Britain, and his father... In what time? What? You didn't say the actual time. You just say Ro- you just said Roman Britain. So, if he's born maybe in the three nineties, then he's growing up 
Roman Britain from the three. That's all I needed was the the three nineties. Yeah, so we're sometime at the end of the fourth century. For context, that means that Constantine's already come and gone back in the beginning of the fourth century, right? So Christianity's no longer a persecuted religion, and actually now, pretty recently, Emperor Theodosius has made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, that's important because in Patrick's family, that had kind of become their profession. His father, Calpurnius, was a deacon in the church. And his grandfather, Potitus, which I think is how you would say it in classical Latin, was uh, actually a priest. Um, and I, But I think it's also key to note that they accepted also the Roman, like, Roman, <coughs> the Roman era with their names, like... They had become Romanized. Even they might have been British, like Britons, like Celtic people, but they had become Romans. Romans. I think is at least the biography I read. I don't remember Patrick saying this, but um, he probably did. But uh, his father, Calpurnius, was actually had the noble rank of a decurion, and they were responsible for like collecting taxes in the in the provinces. Yeah, what I learned, what I read too, said that he was. In control of taxes, which, yeah, I mean, so he was probably like a local official. Yeah, he got to wear a purple stripe on his toga, so he kind of stood out. But I think that would make sense as to what happens to Patrick as a teenager, like why he would be a target. In my yeah. opinion, no, I agree because since they are a family kind of 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 rank, um, they have probably a home in the in the village, and then they also have a country estate, which is like a working farm, but it's. It's a Roman villa, not not like big, like you know that you might see ruins of in Rome or Italy, but um, I mean they had a a nice house probably, and that is where, as Lily says, he might have become a target for Irish raiders because it, at this time period where it's like right around the year four hundred, maybe four hundred five, um, the Roman Empire is really getting pressured along all of its borders by different types of barbarians. By bar- barbarians, we mean like in mainland Europe, it's the Germans, like the Franks um, and the Visigoth. But up in Patrick's neck of the woods, it's the Irish from across the Irish Sea, which must have been pretty close to his home, even though we don't know where that is. Um, and the Picts coming down from, from Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. So at one night, we don't know when again, but probably around like 400, 405. Um, we can speculate at least that Patrick probably got dragged out of bed one night along with probably all the servants and slaves of his household. And he gets, um, you know, chained up to a chain gang and dragged down to the coast and taken to Ireland. And see a book, especially a little kid's book that I read, depicted as that he was walking into town when he was kidnapped. I guess that's possible. It's the, so the biography I mainly read um, besides Patrick's writings was by Philip Freeman, and he speculated at least that this raid would have happened at nighttime. And I guess he's just imagining that, but, um, you know, that there would have been some scouting out maybe and that they would have slipped in probably a, a little inlet and come a few miles inland at most and had targeted this Roman villa and probably captured the whole ho- household. Um, we know that his parents weren't killed because he mentions later that he comes back to them, so maybe they weren't there at the time, who knows. Or maybe you're right. Maybe you got captured alone somewhere else. Yeah, I mean that's what that's what one source I 
<clears throat> read said about him. And I remember the source. <laughs> Trick question. Huh. Um, but so he's a teenager at the time that he's kidnapped. Yeah, he's like and fifteen. What's interesting to me is like in his writings, he kind of basically states that his education was incomplete, which yeah. is weird because here, like I mean, in our now you know day and age, it's not you know unthinkable for uh, a fifteen-year-old to start college classes or. That's kind of what he refers to, though, probably, is that he had already gotten the basics because he's apparently literate in Latin because he leaves behind at least these kind of strange Latin documents. But he probably didn't get to the point where he learned rhetoric and really got a chance to perfect his knowledge of, like, Latin literature the way his contemporary St. Augustine or St. Jerome would have, where they become, you know, masters of this language. You know, Augustine gets to the point where he's a teacher. But for Patrick, he probably got through the basics and got some literacy, and then he got cut off. And it's we're not sure, you know, Latin maybe was spoken among the family or at least officially in public, but he might have also been speaking this British language. He may have also heard Irish among, like, the slaves and servants. So he he just he complains later that he just didn't get the chance to really focus on his education the way probably his fellow bishops and clergy did, who he now eventually is going to get um, probably criticized by. And so during his kidnapping in Ireland, he sold to a slave master or who, like a sheep herder, right? Or a farmer. A farmer. They probably had a lot of different things going on, like cattle, but being watching the sheep was kind of like the lowest menial labor, aside from, you know just shoveling other stuff but um it would have been good work for like a child slave like him um who was not quite an adult but not necessarily like a little kid because you could just put him out you know out in the cold and rain and say okay you sit here and you watch the sheep until they need to be moved the small children's books that i was reading and i can't remember their names right now mostly because they weren't that great uh-huh. And Not as good story. as the Tommy yeah. DePaula Patrick, patron saint of Ireland. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one's closer to the actual history. Yeah. I feel like. But these other ones were depicting that he was living in a cave as yeah. his home. I don't know. I mean, as the you know, slave that, master's but... home or whatever. But yeah, I would agree. I, I haven't. I don't remember reading it from anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, and, he definitely describes it as a cold lonely time where he's just is is miserable sitting out in the rain and snow what i really like during this time is how um, patrick comes into the faith because because although his family was part of christianity in and had these roles sometimes i feel like when you're talking about roman britain and you get to um like constantine and these emperors making uh Christianity a the part of their main religion it's I feel like as if maybe they do it for the career or political means yeah so, I read I a mean, little bit about that too I mean because like I mean isn't that what we're kind of been talking about as parents is to make sure that we don't just like basically introduce the faith but actually 
show joy and ingrain the faith into our children, like actually have them understand the apologetics before the even teenagers, because they are going to struggle with this. So that was interesting to me is what I'm saying, that it yeah. didn't seem like Patrick, although his family, his dad may have been a deacon, it didn't seem as though they had... I don't want to say it in like a strong foundation because obviously he was able to go back to the faith during yeah. his time, but I don't know how much you can infer about it. Cause on the one hand you're right. And he says it in his, in the confession, um, his main kind of autobiographical document. He says that he was not even a believer in the true God and that he didn't listen to the priests. Um, and so you can imagine that he's not, He's this rebellious teenager, kind of, or at least kind of under the radar, just a doubter um, of of this religion that his family has embraced. But at the same time, he must have absorbed quite a bit to then turn to God in his crisis, where now he's had every he's lost everything, all of his status, all of his comforts, and what he does, he says, is that he prays a hundred times a day and a hundred times a night. Um, he just constantly fasts and prays throughout this whole ordeal, eventually. And I mean, basically to the point that he starts having mystical experiences because he's, he's so converted. So I don't know how badly catechized he could have been. Maybe it was, maybe he was the problem. I don't know. I guess you do bring up a good point in saying that. Um, I just thought, I was just thinking like, while he was saying this for him to actually question it made me wonder, like as, as like, it is something that we have brought up into our own lives as, you know, how we are going to raise our children um yeah. but it, it it is good to see that during his his time of crisis and then that he turns to god because i mean i feel like it, when you're a teenager it can go either or way like your mindset could go 180 i think that's true probably of him too like he could have gone totally you know just accepted that he is now outside of the christian world and none of that helped him or saved him from this horrible thing and he could have gone native and embraced where he was i guess you know just like that viking show when the monk gets kidnapped and he becomes a viking basically yes that could have happened to him i mean i'm sure that there's yeah i would think that that was like a viable alternative probably but instead he hangs on and he kind of rediscovers his christian identity so during this mystic, one of the mystic visions is that he starts having a dream in where um, he, is he talking to Christ or is that Christ is talking to him? He identifies who the voice is. I think he, I mean, I, I think that he always maintains that it's the spirit, the Holy Spirit, but the voice tells him like, it, you've done well fasting and praying. Um you'll be going home soon. And then he's kind of doubting that. And I think he has another dream where that it then tells him, no, it's time to go. Your ship is ready. And it tells him it, he's feels that he's being shown the way yeah, to where he's going to get like 200 miles away from where he is. We're yes. So... so he says yeah. the one book I read, I mean, the, in the introduction to the edition of his writings that I read said that maybe we shouldn't take all of his measurements too literally because he, Sometimes he's just kind of giving a round number. But if we take that literally, that maybe it's like 200 miles, then it's possible that he was taken all the way from the east coast of Ireland facing Britain to almost the west coast. 
And the biography I read by Philip Freeman said that maybe he was up in the northwest coast um, where it is, you know, very cold and um, and wet. And if that's true, then he might have probably walked all the way around like the southern edge of Ireland to go find the ship that he was looking for. So he had a long walk. How many years was he in slavery? I think he was a slave for six years. So if if he's accurate that it was 15, then he's probably about 21 at the time that he decides he's going to escape. Once again, we're going to a sticky part of what actually happens to him afterward, which is once again why I can't stand this part of history. I need facts, people. It's kind of like well, no, because yes, well, nobody really knows what happened because he doesn't go directly home after right after this, right? And so there is speculation, uh, like a few sources I was reading, but it seems less likely that he went to France right with this these group of guys. Yeah. That's one theory. I, I can't oh, kind of keep oh, going back guess, and forth on how likely it is. I, don't I know. guess we should go back and explain who he went with. So he found random. I mean, he did eventually, as he's as he walked for weeks, probably he finds a ship and it's about to cast off, like right when he gets there that day. And he asks the captain um, to join the crew, apparently, and the captain. I think probably recognized his accent and that he was, you know, thin and hungry looking and had nothing and thought, okay, you're a runaway slave. Uh, I'm not taking you with me because I'll get punished by, you know, either if he's a merchant, he's going to get retribution, you know, towards his business. And if he's Irish, he might be, I don't think they were pirates. They were merchants. They were probably, according to the story, it seems like they were probably transporting Irish dogs to yeah to europe to be sold because they were apparently famous for dogs and that's i guess based on a detail that patrick mentions later that they had a bunch of dogs with them mm-hmm. and the, it only makes sense if those were the cargo because they're starving looking for food and they're not eating the dogs for some reason anyway we're getting ahead of ourselves so the captain seems to recognize that this roman is a slave who's run away um and so he refuses to take him at first but then later for whatever reason, after Patrick walks away, kind of down, downcast and praying, not sure what's going to happen, then suddenly they call him back and they say, hey, come back, we're going to take you. And here's, I think, where there's two different stories. One story is that something goes missing, and so they say that they need him. And another story I was reading was saying that um, another crew member says that he he will bring them good luck. I read neither one of those things. Oh, really? All I saw, all the only place I got that was from the children's book by Tommy DePaula. No, I, I heard it from like maybe the other Where children's books. I told you I can't remember because the books were terrible. Okay. <laughs> but you read The Confession by Patrick, though. No? Okay. I I he doesn't, I, I don't think he mentions in The Confession. Yeah. I think any of those details are going to be made up, though, because The Confession doesn't record that, I don't think. It, it barely records that there are dogs. And then it gets really vague because he says that they sail for three days and when they get to wherever they end up, he doesn't say, then they're lost in a desert for 28 days or a deserted place or some sort of wasteland. That's kind of a weird thing because they're either going to be going to Gaul or they're going to be going to Britain. And, and Gaul is uh, what would be considered France. Right. So they're 
they're one place or the other, it seems like must be, but how or why either one of those places would be completely deserted is kind of strange. One really sensational theory is that they get there exactly after the Germanic barbarians have swept through Gaul and left it in ruins, sort of, and that's why it's it's all deserted. But that may not be really what happened even during the barbarian invasion, so it's like... You know, we're assuming that that's what it was like. Then we're assuming that he got there at that exact moment. That doesn't necessarily fit with the chronology. You know, I don't know. It's based on that's it, awfully convenient I mean, theory. Well, yes, but it also goes with the theory that he met. Um, who did he meet in Gaul? What pastor or? We don't know. No, but there isn't there speculation of that. Theory? Yeah, there's speculation that he ends up with Bishop. Germanus, who eventually gets sent to Britain to combat Pelagianism, but that's not that's not known from Patrick's lifetime. But as also, I think the Germanus thing comes into play because there is a sense that he had met him before when he goes back to Britain. But I mean, we don't know that they were there even at the same. Okay, so they are contemporaries, I think. But I think the issue is that. We know about Germanus, we know about Patrick, and there's a temptation to try to connect them, because of course they must have all known each other, but I don't know if that's true. Gotcha. And see, this is where one of the children's books that I was reading, and I'll, I'll put all the ones that I was reading on the show notes, because... And that's in the um, one-volume history triumph about the Catholic, about all of church history, too. That takes it almost like for granted that Patrick and Germanus worked together and knew each other, but... I mean, if they did, Patrick doesn't mention it. So, but does Patrick make? But does I don't feel like Patrick mentions anyone he worked with. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Patrick's super vague about everything. We don't know where his hometown is. Yeah. We don't know hardly anything about him. But it, it's possible that he he. But it okay. So it is possible that he ends up back in Gaul, because he does mention that he's gone for a few years, at, possibly. At least that's how I kind of read it. So it's possible he went to Gaul and that that's where he studied to become first a deacon and a priest. And then he goes back from there to Britain and Ireland. And see, that's what I think this, the children's source that I read. Like yeah. That's one theory. Yeah. The other theory, though, could be that they just they got you know due to some accident, maybe they got sort of shipwrecked or had a land because of pirates or whatever on like a deserted coast far away from their intended port in Britain and maybe they just had to walk a long time before they got to a settlement and Patrick could be exaggerating how long maybe he's not maybe it just took a long time because they were hauling a bunch of cargo but and one anyway once they land um, they do get lost they're starving apparently after weeks of, of wandering around and trying to carry their stuff with them and the captain of the boat says to Patrick, I guess mockingly, you know, isn't your God supposed to be all powerful? Why don't you, you know, why don't you save us? And Patrick tells him, okay, I am going to pray and God's going to provide for us today. And shortly after that, they run across a herd of pigs. Is herd the right word? A bunch of pigs. Come on. I would think herd is the right word. But they, they get pigs and um, they eat. And Patrick um, is sort of vindicated in their eyes then. 
Um, and after that, he kind of gets really vague about his own life. As far as we know, he, he comes back. He, yeah, he goes back home after some amount of time. We don't know if he spent some time abroad, like in Gaul first or not. But he gets back to Britain to his actual family and is greeted, you know, really jubilantly by his parents who thought he was dead. And um, they're probably going to be really sad when he decides he's going to leave again. But that doesn't happen immediately. Yeah. And they say, and I think during this time, too, if he didn't study in Gaul to become a deacon and then a priest, then it's more likely that he did his studies when he finally came back home, right? Yeah. And I think that actually, that was kind of more convincing idea for me because his father and his grandfather, if he's still alive, are involved in the church in Britain. So you would think they have connections or could send him to a bishop that they know to be his patron kind of. In and I don't think we get who his patron is, do we? No, we don't really know. He mentions different times when he was like kind of under scrutiny and prevailed um, and that he had a friend who who helped him and told him the news and everything, but um, it's all pretty vague. We don't know if that happened in Gaul or in Britain. But anyway, he comes home, and he definitely spends a few years there. Um, but at some point, he starts having another series of dreams, and he sees somebody who he says is uh, like a man named Victoricus. Victoricus, yeah, right? Victoricus, yeah. Um, his medieval biographer, Muraku, says that Victoricus is an angel, but he seems to describe him as a man, and it seems I like the idea that it was actually probably a fellow slave and Christian from back in Ireland, because you gotta remember there's thousands of people probably being enslaved and taken to Ireland. See, I never heard, I never read anything about. I just read about the vision, not anything significant about Victor's. Victor, Victor like speculation about him. Yeah, no. So I think the I bet that he was probably someone Patrick knew, and he's carrying a bunch of letters as if letters from Ireland and he gives one to Patrick and it says the voice of the Irish and um, it says something like Christian boy or holy boy that's what it says Mm -hmm. Um, come walk among us again Um, and the book I read speculated again because it's all speculation that maybe holy boy was like a nickname for him back when he was a slave so this is as if the people he's left behind now are crying out for him to come back so that's really powerful vision for him, and he it's a, he describes it as like heartbreaking. Um, and after a few of these dreams, he decides that he does he needs to go back. Need to and, go then, back. and then it is heartbreaking because he has to tell his family, and it's supposed that you know there was sadness. Yeah. That he had to leave again. It'd probably be super hard to understand because I mean it would be like somebody. I mean, you know, like missing for so many years. But I mean, you realize their hopes okay, for so like the family are now being dashed because yeah. he is their son and he's leaving. Mm-hmm. And any hopes that they might have had that he's going to be in the church, like in Britain, are, you know, that it's kind of going down the drain because he's telling them, no, I want to be a missionary to, Ir- to the Irish. So during this um, vision and stuff, he decides to go back to Ireland. However, there is. There is pushback from his from the bishops and stuff, aren't there? Like, they. Um, well, we don't know anything about that right now. What we. What must well, have. It, no, next I mean, isn't is that isn't that why why he starts writing, to kind of. No, that's much much later probably. So what happens this time, at this time, is that he must go somewhere to get some sort of education. So there wouldn't be. Like necessarily a formal seminary but you would go to be trained um 
and then to be ordained when you were approved by a bishop. So he, w- he must have gone and found a bishop and spent some time learning the Bible, which he quotes extensively, and um, trying to convince them that he's worthy of being sent on this kind of mission. The next definite date we know of is a, a chronicle that Bede does know about, which says that this person named Palladius um, gets sent to be the first bishop of the Irish. Bede leaves it at that. He does not mention Patrick. If he knows about him, he sure doesn't mention it. That's, you know, that's interesting because who knows, you know, nobody's going out and marching in parades on St. Palladius's feast day. Patrick's mm-hmm. remembered. But Bede apparently doesn't care about that. Um, it's significant, though, because that happens in the year 431, and we know that from, like, a reliable chronicle. That's why everybody dates Patrick's mission to like 432. But the biography I read said, well, you know, Patrick, if he was a young priest at this point, so remember he maybe was born in the 390s. He's a teenager, like 405. He comes back maybe sometime in the 410s, teens. So now it's like 20 years later, less than 20 years later. So maybe now he's a priest and he speaks the Irish language. And if he is in Gaul, he might get attached to this bishop palladius and sent as part of that group to help with the mission mm-hmm. especially since he knows the language and he knows the like the cultural significance of the slavery and stuff like that yeah because he was a slave he knows the condition he knows yeah. that there's the, all these christian the slaves is really scattered yeah. throughout ireland who need the correct some sort of ministry um and he's also i mean you know so anyway he's he's multilingual He's been there. He, he could be a good guy to have around at that point. Um, I thought that was kind of a good theory to reconcile everything, but we don't know that for sure. At any point, at any way, though, the tradition is that Palladius either turns back or um, even that he, he just dies at some point. At, and it's possible that someone like Patrick then stepped in and took on a leadership role. And something you said, Lilia, the last time we tried to talk about this um, that I liked was that maybe from the Irish perspective, even if Palladius was around, maybe Patrick, since he was the one who spoke Irish, could have become kind of the face of the mission. Well, and I think in general, because of his lack of education and and things like that, I feel like, and this is why I, I really like after learning about St. Patrick, I've learned to like him, is that he seems more down-to-earth. He may not be like the other Roman citizens who... I don't know. I, I mean, it's it's like as if you meet somebody who went to Ivy League and all they try to do is use the biggest vocabulary they have. And it's You're just... talking about you, St. Augustine. No, I'm not. No, but he is. St. Augustine's the polar opposite of Patrick. He's... Highly educated, you know, Roman to the core, and that's like, a difference. Though. I no, but I think that that is why Patrick's so his writings, even though they're much simpler, they're a lot more. You you get kind of a warmer personality coming through. That's true. I I will say that's true, and you're right. Okay. You don't have to sign on to that theory, but I, in my opinion, I think it's interesting that these two writings are from like. Pretty much, the, yeah, the same time period, and yet they're so different in tone and in intellectual level. Yeah, and I think the documentary we were uh, watching today also 
talks about talked about how like he knew how to um i guess go against the druids because he knew what they kind of believed after have having been there for so many years probably i mean this is this is just yeah. a theory and but i mean i think not to say that he was like a blue collar guy but he kind of was because he came from a background of yeah i agree of slavery and he, although he is educated he also had that um being kidnapped happened to him that he's able to probably talk to most of these irish people um but anyway as i said like i i had said in the other podcast that we tried to record about his um writings like i just i had i always thought that saints had to be these educated you know know it all know everything about religion and i know there were children saints but i guess i ignored them and put them in like the back burner of my mind and so it was just refreshing to read. Poor Saint Maria Goretti. And so, just reading Saint Patrick's writings really helped me to understand and be hopeful of my own sainthood. Not that I'm, you know, gonna be a saint, but I'm trying. I believe you'll be a saint someday. Yeah. Okay. Um, what were we talking about? His writings and that how he was a bishop. Okay, so we got kind of to the... Yeah, we are getting now to the point where he makes the writings. And you mentioned, though, like him and the Druids. We don't really know exactly what happened, but at least in the documentary we were talking about today, this, um, I guess he was a, a priest or an abbot, was kind of going through probably the questions that Patrick's got, Patrick would have gotten, like, well, is your God more powerful than our God of the ocean? And Patrick probably could have would have quoted, you know, scripture to them about... Jesus command the sea to be calm and kind of going through like all the different elements of nature. And you can see how Patrick would have, you know, been able to anticipate that having been there for like for six years, he probably knew the people and knew their religion um, and was better able to like evangelize them. But um, anyway, the, the biography I read kind of Muraku, the medieval biographer, he portrays Patrick as like a wizard who kicks down the door of Ireland and like really, awes them with miracles and there's like I mean there's there's light shooting out of his fingers and he's turning into like a deer and it's crazy that probably wasn't like that he probably went and ministered to the Christians who were living in Ireland either as slaves or who were starting to be converted by their slaves and by other people who were coming amongst them like merchants um, he probably went to them first and then slowly started as he was making his way from tribe to tribe um, and paying lots of of money to keep the peace to these local chieftains. And then he started to get some converts and started to get, make um, more of a, a name for himself. Probably at some point he is, you know, he, he's really starts baptizing people. Like he, he's baptizes like thousands of people. He says, and he starts ordaining um, clergy. So we know he's a Bishop at that point. Um, and people are, are coming to him and saying, you know, Patrick, I think I'm being called to a life of perpetual virginity and I'm going to go be a nun not none, but they're they're becoming they're devoting themselves to religion um and he's starting to be really successful and probably being noticed by the british church and arousing like some suspicion and jealousy at least that's kind of what you can pick up in his writings and now we're to the point i think where you were saying where we talked about his writings well we didn't even talk about the other writings where he writes the 
the soldiers. Oh yeah. So that there's a really short letter, one of the two, that's called the letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. Mm-hmm. We don't know who Caroticus is. He's probably like, probably, um, as Roman Britain is falling apart in the early 400s, it seems to be that these local kind of tyrants take over the towns in kind of emergency conditions. So people like Patrick's father are probably getting kind of pushed out of the way and these sort of military strongmen are taking over. Um, and Caroticus is like that. So at some point, Caroticus sends some soldiers and they raid the Irish coast and kidnap a bunch of Christians who Patrick has just baptized, apparently. And this is outrageous to Patrick because Caroticus is supposedly a Christian, and yet they're treating the Irish like dirt, um, despite them being baptized Christians now. And he writes this outraged, open letter to um, the British churches and to Caroticus, saying... um, you know, that you're a murderer and everybody needs to ignore you. I hope you're going to repent. Um, Caroticus apparently, I mean, it's not known whether that was taken seriously or not. The legend after that is that Caroticus laughed. And Muraku says that when Caroticus laughed at it, Patrick prayed and then he was turned into a fox. So at least that happened to him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That maybe didn't happen. Who knows? But um, what does seem to have happened, at least according to the biography I read, is that Patrick might have been interpreted as overstepping his jurisdiction because he's going over everybody's heads and just chewing out Caroticus directly. And at that time, you weren't supposed to go into someone else's diocese and start disciplining their, their people, even though nobody probably would have had the guts to stand up to Caroticus in his own, on his own turf. But there seems to have been some sort of controversy arising after this to where Patrick was maybe even being summoned back to Britain to answer for whatever charges were being brought against him. And at that point, there also seems to have been a rumor of a sin that he had committed back when he was very young, like a teenager, before he was ever even kidnapped. That was bad enough that people were calling for him to to come back and to not be a bishop. We don't know what his sin was, and that's kind of a matter of intense speculation because it you know what could a 15 year old have done that's so bad that like 40 years later it would cause a this much scandal but we don't know i thought you i thought that you had read one of the sources that may have speculated what his sin was i'd read two books that speculated about it and one said one came down thinking that it was maybe murder that he maybe had because a maybe killing a slave in that society at the time might have been acceptable, but once you become a Christian, of course you're not supposed to just go out and murder slaves. Um, another, The other book, though, said that, you know, yes, murder is one of the sins that could have been serious enough to cause us trouble. could have also been a sexual sin, or it could have been idolatry, because there would have been a lot of, like, different cults that you could be a part of at the time. It's something that you would have just needed to pay like the priest of that cult, and you would get initiated. So it's possible that Patrick, before he was a believer, had maybe committed like a sin of idolatry. But again, we don't know really what he did. It's a little hard to believe that someone would have held like a sexual sin against him after so many decades, but I mean, we don't know. But it's kind of interesting, He apparently he confided that or confessed it to a friend when he was training as a deacon, and I guess it had come up for discussion at that point, and he had been 
cleared and then it had gotten aired publicly. Um, then when this controversy about Caroticus and, and everything developed. So this friend, you know, betrays him at that point. And he met, he has a passage in the confession where he's lamenting the fact that this friend has turned on him after keeping a silence for so long. So after that, I mean, that's just it. He dies in March 17th, right? That's the tradition. They, he either dies... Which is when we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Right. So it's based on his traditional day that he died, March 17th. Maybe 361 seems more likely to me. Another tradition... 361? Says, you mean 461? Oh, yeah. Sorry. 461. I mean, he wasn't even born. Yes, supposedly. yes. Yeah, so yeah, uh, either 461 or another tradition says even 491. And that he was 120 when he died, but that maybe isn't the most likely. 461 seems likely to me. Nah, he was 120 years old. The kidding. other reason 461 seems likely is I think the tradition is that his ministry to the Irish went about 30 years. So if he did come with Palladius in about 431, then if he dies in 461, that fits nice and neatly. But, yeah, we don't know exactly when he dies. We don't know how the controversy about his, that, you know, prompts these letters, how that all comes out. I mean, it must have come out fine because, I mean, we don't hear anything else about it afterward. Yeah. And I think he would have, I think he would have, like, responded. He doesn't go down in, like, infamy, certainly. He's venerated after his death. First a little and then more and more and more until he becomes, like, the leading patron saint of Ireland against some other coming competitors. Who are his other competitors? I think there's other dioceses that trace their their founding to like Palladius or to St. Bridget. Um, well, not St. Bridget herself to, as like the founderess, but that she was like their patron saint. Um, so there's other saints who are prominent in Ireland. I don't know about them. Okay. I don't really know either, but apparently later on when people like Merck who are writing biographies of Patrick, part of the motive is that they're gonna they're trying to promote the the bishopric of of northern ireland armagh i think is how it's pronounced um and to make that the the leading bishopric because it's associated with patrick and he does seem to have been associated with northern ireland but so they have kind of an agenda when they're writing these lives of of saint patrick later on in the middle ages but then Bede also has an agenda because he likes to always highlight the roman influence so when he leaves out Patrick and highlights Palladius, you know, that might be intentional too because Palladius was sent by Pope Celestine. It's all really vague. Which is why I don't like the history because it's like, don't tell me stories. Give me facts, Holmes. I I mean, I kind of like that you can have a historical figure like Caroticus and then suddenly he turns into a fox. I think that's great. Okay. I think that's your literary love. I just, I mean, I think the Dark Ages are kind of interesting because of it sort of fades from history into folklore and then kind of comes back out as history again eventually. So talking about fol- folklore, I wanted to kind of talk to you about and pre- present the question to you of like how St. Patrick's Day has turned, how we celebrate it here in the United States or how the Irish celebrate it. How do you feel about it like do you think like the tradition is carrying on or has it been washed away it's hard i don't talk debauchery it seems like it's mostly debauchery but i mean 
that's what the public face is. I mean, I'm so I'm background. I'm a little bit Irish. I have like at my zero percent Irish. I'm just kidding. True. My great grandmother was from Southern Ireland, and um, you know, my mom remembers her. So, but we grew up celebrating St. Patrick's Day, and the way we celebrated it was my parents would always make um, corned beef because that was the the food that. Um, my grandma grew up with and uh, potatoes and cabbage and it would all pretty much be boiled in one pot and I always remember that that was like the St. Patrick's Day meal corned beef, cabbage and potatoes and you know we did that out of respect for our Irish heritage there wasn't any debauchery though I was like a little kid so there wouldn't be but that's what I, I only had like positive associations with it for a long time and see I don't <laughs> So we didn't really celebrate it too much, but if it was on the weekend, somebody might have a party and there would be debauchery a little bit. It wasn't like Cinco de Mayo or anything. It was. It's okay. Let's not even get started with Cinco de Mayo because that's not even. A Catholic holiday. Well, one, that's not a Catholic holiday. And two, that's not even Mexico's Independence Day. And I'm tired of everybody thinking that that's what it was. Don't get me started on Mexican history misrepresented in America. Horribly diluted American you know pantheon of weird immigrant holidays it sort of is the equivalent though it's kind of like a mexican saint patrick's day at this point isn't it i guess i guess you could compare it to that and that's i mean that in all just the most judgmental ways on the people that have done that to those two holidays but i i think saint patrick's day should be a great day when you remember your irish heritage one or the great saint patrick who seems like a pretty interesting saint to me no, I agree. I, I agree completely because, like I said, for me, he opened up my eyes into knowing that not all saints had to be these intellectual smarty pants who came from rich families and decided not to get married. Because let's face it, that's like quite a bit of the medieval story. Well, I'm being so anti-saints right I'm now. I'm not being anti-saints. It's just I'm saying that that's what I... He is a, a interestingly like humble... Um, I mean, he had a, an adventurous life and went through a lot of probably serious poverty. And that, that is, it's really impressive. I was impressed by him. Yeah. And I, I, and for me, I don't feel like I'm faking it anymore in wanting to celebrate St. Patrick's Day because I'm married to you and we have children and now I have to actually. Yeah. I'm glad we got to know him a little bit because I, I, I agree. Like, I do feel like this is a saint I would like to celebrate. And he accomplished something really important too. Like, do you want to talk about his legacy a little bit? Just no, he drove snakes out of a plane. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he what he did do was he he turns Ireland into kind of a evangelizing powerhouse, and they they end up sending um, monks and priests out to the rest of Europe and really helping um, monasteries to take off. And part of that was that Ireland was very rural and didn't have any major cities so when they become christian instead of having like a bishop who's in like their capital city they have lots of monasteries and they they organize more along those kind of lines and they take that to the rest of europe and they i think that really enriched the rest of christendom and helped to to build it up you know i feel like the catholicism stayed strong in ireland especially like once you start getting into the issues of the Protestant Reformation in England, I don't remember hearing it as uh, 
it's it strong really yeah. much up until modern times, I guess. And now it's, I guess, there's other things happening. But I mean, I think they still they're they're like the Italians and they stay culturally Catholic in some aspects. And I mean, and they're I mean, it, I shouldn't just say the Italians. Most of Europe has stayed culturally Catholic. So, but also now there's an Irish diaspora around the world, and I think that they've carried. You know, you can't. It, I understand there's Ireland, the country, and the, the obviously they are the true, pure Irish. But there are Irish people now scattered throughout the English-speaking world, and they've carried their Catholicism out to, you know, the the ends of the earth, as Patrick would say, because that's what his his boast was. They said he had brought Christianity to the end of the earth. Yeah, there's even Irish speculated to have gone to Mexico, which is part of like supposedly why we celebrated it in my family because because you had an Irish ancestor supposedly possibly speculated Irish ancestor reminds me you know there was a so in the Mexican American war uh, there were Irish immigrants who defected from the US army to the Mexican army and they formed a like a a big battalion. Okay, and that's 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 getting off topic. But it was called the uh, they were called the San Patricios. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, relevant. It was relevant after all, wasn't it? Um, anything else? Um, I guess not. I guess that's all. You know, and I hope that people celebrate St. Patrick's Day in a more rich way than just a, a Guinness. I feel like we should be praying like the actual saint's prayer. The breastplate. That's a beautiful one, actually. I I agree. We should. Yeah, it's in the other book. I'll go get the, the other book. One. Okay, we'll end with this. I'm gonna go ahead and read this prayer. Cause I can't read if from. You if you guys heard the last podcast where I did poor reading, I no longer will be reading. I'm gonna read this. This is a prayer that's attributed to Patrick. It's probably not by him but it captures like the the spirituality that he leaves behind it's called patrick's breastplate i rise today in power strength invoking the trinity believing in threeness confessing the oneness of creation's creator i rise today in the power of christ's birth and baptism in the power of his crucifixion and burial in the power of his rising and ascending in the power of his descending and judging i rise today in the power of the love of the cherubim in the obedience of angels and service of archangels, in hope of rising to receive the reward in the prayers of the patriarchs, in the predictions of the prophets, in the preachings of the apostles, in the faith of confessors, in the innocence of holy virgins, in the deeds of the righteous. I rise today in heaven's might, in sun's brightness, in moon's radiance, in fire's glory, in lightning's quickness, in wind's swiftness, in sea's depth, in earth's stability, in rock's fixity. I rise today with the power of God to pilot me, God's strength to sustain me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look ahead for me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to protect me, God's way before me, God's shield to defend me, God's host to deliver me. From snares of the devils, from evil temptations, from nature's failings, from all who wish to harm me, far or near, alone and in a crowd. Around me I gather today all these powers against every cruel and merciless force to attack my body and soul, against the charms of false prophets, the black laws of paganism, the false laws of heretics, the deceptions of idolatry, against spells cast by women, smiths, and druids, and all unlawful knowledge and harms the body and soul. 
May Christ protect me today against poison and burning, against drowning and wounding, so that I may have abundant reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me, Christ in my lying, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, Christ in the heart of all who think of me, Christ in the tongue of all who speak of me, Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me. I rise today in power of strength, invoking the Trinity, believing in threeness, confessing the oneness of creation's creator. For to the Lord belongs salvation, and to the Lord belongs salvation, and to Christ belongs salvation. May your salvation, Lord, be with us always. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you stuck around long enough for uh, Jake's reading, props to you. I was... Um, and hopefully we will get that beat episode out to you guys sometime before the end of the month. We would love it if you guys shared this podcast with others and left us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and that beat episode will be coming out soon.